Well, let me pray for us real quick uh, before we dive into this. I'm kind of heavy because what we're going to talk about is kind of heavy and I don't want to ruin the mood in here, <laughs> but what we're going to talk about is heavy. So let's ask for some grace to receive it. Lord, uh, I feel sore like someone who ran a marathon, but I didn't do any running this week, uh, thinking about and receiving uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. And um, probably all of us are kind of sore for some reason or another this morning. So I just pray that uh, you would tenderize our hearts and minds right now, that you would make us um, able to receive uh, wisdom and understanding from you uh, and have the courage that we're going to talk about this morning to, to really consider how this applies to our lives. So we trust you at this time in your name. Amen. It's kind of cool, a seat. Uh, I've never had a seat here. It's kind of nice. Um, well, we've been talking over the last quite a while now, maybe over a few months, uh, about being a missional community and that we believe that we're called to be that. We believe that that's what Scripture teaches. Um, and last week, um, Joel focused on this idea that part of being in a missional community is the mission of story. And Acts chapter 3, uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, and you're welcome to start turning to that while I set this up. But in Acts chapter 3, um, there's a man who's been crippled since birth uh, who lays every day and begs for money at the gate, beautiful. And um, we know because it says that he was crippled since birth, and you can imagine that if you were crippled from birth, that that would probably be the defining thing about your life. Like that would be the, the very center of your story. This is that I'm someone who's crippled. And what we see going on in Acts 3 is Peter and John kind of step on, onto the scene and this man's asking for money and they give him a whole lot more than that. And what they give him is they heal him. And Jesus steps into, through Peter and John, and Christ through power, Holy Spirit inside of these guys, steps in and and completely reorients this guy's story to a completely different center. No longer is his disability the center of the story. Um, Christ and what Christ has done on his behalf in healing him is now the center of the story for this guy. So that was kind of where uh, we left off, and there was a real challenge in that for us was to consider, uh, is Christ at the center of our stories? Do you and I, are we people whose lives are marked by the fact that Christ, that the gospel is at the center of our story? So in Acts chapter 4, this kind of got a crowd together. It's like at a public school when someone yells fight. People run, right? Gather. Well, this is the part where the principle comes, uh, where the people with authority over the actual scene show up. The Sadducees, teachers of the law, high priests. Um, that's where we find ourselves in Acts 4. And I'll just say this before I read it. Um, these were the same people who were questioning Jesus just weeks before. The same people who gave the stamp, crucify him. 
the same people who had the power to send Jesus to the cross, these were the guys who were on the scene now based on what Peter and John had done by healing this guy. So that's important to understand. These are the people with power. Okay, Acts chapter 4. Let's read. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John where they were, while they were speaking to the people, to the crowd that had gathered. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching... What, or sorry, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching and the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many of them who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, these are the guys I was talking about, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power, what name did you do this? Then, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter said to them, sorry, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to the cripple, and we are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people in Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone or cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed was standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these guys? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer of anyone in this name no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called him again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is the first time after the formation of what we know as the church that we see persecution, that we see pain, that we see suffering entering the life of the Christ follower. Yeesh. So soon. Already at this point in the story. Fantastic. How comforting. Um, I thought maybe we would get a little bit further down before something difficult would happen. And this brings us to our primary question this morning. If we are to be a missional community, does that involve pain? Is pain a part of being a missional community? And if so, what role does pain play in that mission? I don't know about you, if I were to do something 
that caused someone great distress? Are you comfortable with that? Do you like it when people who don't even you don't even really respect or like are frustrated with you or angry with you? It creates a ton of tension in our hearts, doesn't it? Just the idea of being someone who someone else is not okay with. And that's not even touching the iceberg of what was going on for Peter and John here. These guys were about and did get thrown into jail as a result of this, threatened, questioned, in front of the men who had the power to end their very lives. So, first observation is this. And sometimes when you read Scripture, what is in Scripture is what's surprising. We're going to talk about two things that aren't here that's really surprised me when I studied this. And the first thing is this. We don't see Peter and John being surprised by the fact that they were being seized, imprisoned, and threatened. Doesn't that surprise you? We don't have one line in here where like Peter pulled John aside and was like, dude, I didn't think this was going to happen this way. Like, our, Maybe we heard wrong. Maybe Matthew 28 wasn't real, and I know we waited for the Holy Spirit, and that felt great. Pentecost was awesome. What what are you talking about? This is going sideways quick. We don't have any of that. There is no written account of any kind of surprise in these men. Does that surprise you? It shocks me. It absolutely shocks me. Many of you have seen Bruce Almighty? Yes? No? Should? Funny? Quiet? Quick? Words? Throwing them out there right now? No. It's a great film. Uh, a good case study for how God uses pain and circumstances to draw us to himself. Remember, he gets out of the car, he steps in the puddle. Oh, could have done without that. I mean, something as minute as stepping into a puddle can cause us to react in that way. Like, I'm surprised, I'm frustrated that something difficult is going on in my life. This isn't okay. This isn't right. This isn't what's supposed to happen for people who follow God, right? Pain? Inconvenience? We're surprised. If you and I had greatly offended somebody who had the power to put us into jail and to end our lives... And the reason they did that was because of something we believed God was calling us to do. We had absolute certainty about it. Wouldn't you at least note a question about, man, God, I'm struggling with this. Are you sure? I mean, come on, Matthew chapter 11, we see John the Baptist, the man who got, or who Jesus said, no man born to a woman is greater than this guy. In Matthew 11, he finds himself in prison as a result of, I think it's Jezebel's daughter asking for his head. And he sends some dudes to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? John the Baptist is struggling in prison, about to be beheaded, and he asks the question, are you it? Like, I didn't think things were going to go down this way. I'm not going to lose my head over this, am I? Seriously? Where's the army? Where's the king? Where's Israel restored? Where are you at, God? 
I would encourage you to go read Jesus' response to John the Baptist. But we, we don't have any of that from these guys. Why not? Why don't we have any record of it? Well, I'd encourage us to consider that something had happened as a result of obviously seeing Christ crucified and raised from the dead. The implications of the resurrection are massive here. And here is why we don't have any record. is because they expected it. They were not confused about the fact that pain and suffering was a part of being united with Christ. That that was a part of being involved in the mission of God to redeem this fallen world, culture, and us. It's a part of it. They expected it. Now, how would they have known to expect it? John 15. I'll post all these things on the website so you don't have to go look at all these things right now. John 15, there's a discourse 14 through 17. would encourage you to read it. But Jesus makes it very, very clear here. He says that apart from me, you can do nothing, vine and branches, all this talk. And then he goes on to the part headed, the world hates the disciples. Fantastic. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They will treat you this way because of my name. Because they do not know the one who has sent me. And he goes on to say, they hated me without reason. Which we're going to get to the whole question of, I need reasons for my suffering. We're going to get to that in a second. He goes on in John 16 to say, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Awesome. I mean, are you not hearing Patty Griffin? It's a mad mission. Difficult conditions. Come on, y'all know. Not everybody makes it to the loving cup. It's a mad mission. I got the ambition. Mad, mad mission. Sign me up. It is. It's madness. Are you kidding? Paul even goes on further. Paul had a theology of pain. Joel and I were talking about this yesterday. We don't have a theology of pain in our culture. Paul had a serious theology of pain. He goes so so far to say, I'm in chains for Christ. He's the reason I'm imprisoned. And the fact that I'm imprisoned, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And then he goes on to say, whatever happens. (laughs) Do you see the, ah, in the midst of that? He's saying, it doesn't matter what happens circumstantially. Whatever is happening for me will turn out for my deliverance because God does work for the good of those who love and believe in him. I am working out your pain, your good, your bad, your ugly for your good. Paul's deliverance is something greater than his circumstances. He's not talking about being delivered from prison. That's not even the issue anymore. He's been set free from that. He even goes on in Philippians 3 to say it like this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You hear what he's suggesting there? That pain isn't just something we should expect He's actually saying it's something I'm, I'm desiring. 
I'm inviting it in. Because by stepping into it, by having it in my life, I actually experience the fact of fellowshipping with Him, sharing in His sufferings, and I experience the power of His resurrection. A resurrected life, not just bus ticket to heaven, here and now. We experience the power of that. Pain, suffering. I mean, a lot of you have a lot of different stories in this room. A lot of fun things have happened in our lives, a lot of good things. But I can guarantee you, the one place that I can connect with every single one of you in this room is is that we have all suffered. I may not be able to relate to your joy, but I can definitely relate to your sorrow. These are to be expected parts of life in Christ. They're not the exception. They're the rule. In fact, if Paul's right, we shouldn't just expect that it could happen or that it will happen. We can actually begin to welcome it, to even desire it, because it invites us into the power of a resurrected life. Does this create any tension for you? You uncomfortable? I'm sweating profusely right now. It should. This should create a great deal of discomfort for you. You should feel probably pretty awkward with what I'm saying right now. Our world, and in particular, I would suggest our American culture, probably typifies this better than anywhere, we are obsessed with avoiding pain. I live most days in the belief that pain isn't possibly a good thing. It's an inconvenience to my life. And it should be avoided at all costs. So if what we talked about last week, if Christ is at the center of the story, then we actually have a context for our pain. But I will suggest to you this, this morning. If Christ isn't at the center of the story, at the center of your story, then you have no context for pain. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Go after it. Satisfy every desire you got. Run hard. If Christ isn't at the center, pain doesn't have a context. So if you find yourself having no capacity to suffer, avoiding pain at all costs, you can be certain of this. I can be certain of what I'm about to say. I'm struggling with unbelief. Deep, deep, deep unbelief. Go to Acts 4, 8 through 13. Because I'd suggest that Peter and John were not struggling with this at all. In verse 10 it says, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone or cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven to which men by which we must be saved. Are you guys familiar with what a cornerstone is? Gordo would probably know this better than almost anybody. He's got a building mind. A cornerstone is a true stone. It's a pure stone. It's a stone that would be perfect. If you were building a wall or a house, you would want to find the most perfect stone, and that would be the first stone you would set. You would want it to be level and true, and then everything else in the house is completely reoriented to that stone. It's the foundation. 
It's the thing to which everything else is set. What we see in Peter and John is a life whose cornerstone is Christ. Whose entire life has been reoriented to the truth of the gospel. And it is now the place from which they speak, they live. It is their life system. It is their gestalt. I don't even know what that word means, but I heard a guy use it for life system. It sounds so sweet, Germany, gestalt. It's their value. It's the lens by which they look at their entire life. C.S. Lewis talks about this pain and our experience of it. Let's see if I can find it. He says, The Christian life is different. It's harder and it's easier. Christ says, Give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, which is what we think when we suffer. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or a branch there. I want the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all of the desire, which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. I want the whole tree down, not a branch here or there. I want to replace your cornerstone. I want to give you the experience of a life completely reoriented to me. Jesus says it in Matthew 21 about this cornerstone. He says, He on whom... He on, sorry, he on, he on, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Isn't that what happens when we suffer? When we fall onto the gospel, it breaks our lives apart. And it needs to happen, y'all. My life has to be broken. A broken and contrite heart is what he doesn't despise. He wants to break it so he can replace it with something true, something that's worth reorienting your entire life to. And it's only when I say, no, I will, I will not give you that cornerstone. He on whom it falls will be crushed. It crushes us. Aren't you crushed under the weight of trying to fix your life, trying to avoid all this pain? Aren't you sick and tired of trying to do it? I'm worn out trying to not suffer. <laughs> Tired of trying to not be tired. The first thing is pain is to be expected. The second thing is this. Defining our pain never gives us what it promises. The second surprise I have for this is is that not only are they not surprised that it happened, they don't ask why. Now if you have a child, you know what it means to be asked why. And even if you don't have a child, you don't need one because you're asking why all the time. Why this? Why that? Why can't I make more money? Why do I hate my job? Why do I not get along better with my wife or my girlfriend? Why don't I have a wife or a girlfriend? Fill in the freaking blank. You ask why all the time. We're constantly doing it. And I would suggest that we take 
a little bit of a clue from what's not here from these guys. They don't ask why. They don't plead with God. They don't plead with one another. They don't even plead with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple dudes. They don't ask why. Defining our pain never gives us the courage to face it. Do you believe that? Defining our pain never gives us the courage to face it. They said that these guys were courageous. And they noted that they were unschooled and ordinary. And that they had been with Jesus. Isn't courage, isn't confidence usually linked to competency? Have you ever been in a situation where men were questioning you or someone was questioning you and you didn't have a clue? You weren't competent in the subject. You start to wheeze and queeze and you feel sick. Maybe some of you are doing this with finals this week. Oh, crap, I should have studied more. It's hard. Our courage is usually linked to our ability, to our mastery. Tiger Woods feels comfortable hitting a golf ball. Why? Because he's hit one millions and millions and millions of times. The edge is not having an identity crisis when he picks up his guitar to go play. He doesn't wonder, how's this going to turn out? Why? Because he's mastered that. Well, Peter and John, guys, they don't have this. They're facing men they've never faced before. In fact, Peter stood on the outskirts of a discussion with these guys when Jesus was involved not too long ago and wouldn't even acknowledge knowing him. So where is the courage to face the pain of what was going on? Where was that coming from? I would suggest it wasn't coming from a defining. I'll read this. Larry Crabb, True Spiritual Community, has some really fantastic things about this. A passion to define the corruption of life experiences into an opportunity to decide what to live for and what to avoid, to define life and death of our souls. The corruption of life experiences. We take what's in our lives and we make it an opportunity to decide what to live for and what to avoid. What's life and death? He says, God has already told us to live for him, to be like him, to represent him to others, and to further his plans. When we turn away from his ideas, we turn instead to our experiences in life to see what is good and bad. Whatever feels good, what seems to give us an immediate sense of life, we decide is life. We decide it is food for our souls, and we chase after it with all the excitement of a street person in a back alley, rummaging through a fine restaurant's garbage. And whatever feels bad, what makes us quickly miserable, we decide is death. We develop a game plan to keep from experiencing it again. Suffering is to be avoided or at least minimized. When we're abused, rejected, or criticized, we don't look at these painful experiences as a reason to more clearly depend on God and demonstrate His character in the midst of them. Instead, they become the basis for figuring out how to live. We interpret life experiences. We process them to see how various things make us feel so we can make important decisions about how to live. We take on the responsibility of defining the events of our lives. He goes on to say, Our passion to define life and death always misleads us. We were never meant to possess the knowledge of good and evil. Because you and I know what is good and what is bad. 
We've assumed a responsibility that was never ours, which is the responsibility of believing that we actually have the ability to define the events of our lives. And in fact, we don't just have the ability, we demand that it occur. We believe if we can define it, we can understand it. If we can understand it, then we're, what? In control of it. And we have the power to avoid it. I'd suggest this is a dangerous place for us to spend much time. And the sad thing is, is I spend an awful lot of time there. Believing that I'm actually in control of all these events in my life. You see, for us, control is peace. Control is joy. Control is rest. Isn't it? Things are going well. I kind of got a handle on everything. How are these guys having courage when they're facing men who could have their heads? Well, I would suggest they weren't struggling with the unbelief of what we talked about earlier. They were experiencing what Paul wrote about in Philippians 3, the power of resurrected life then. You don't have the power, guys. Pharisees, Sadducees, you think you have the power of us, but our life has been reoriented to a new cornerstone. All your authority is gone. We believe what Jesus said. And by his Holy Spirit, he's given us the grace to walk in that what he said in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. They were going in that power. They believed this statement, Colossians 3.3 says, that my life is now hidden with Christ in God. He was their everything. He had reoriented them, everything about their lives to this truth. Christ had experientially become the cornerstone. Philippians 4.10 says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Carly and I were joking about this, the abuse of this verse in our Christian culture. I mean, if I wanted to go be a Tennessee Titan, you all are looking at me right now. You understand that's just not possible. I'm not big enough. I'm not fast enough. I am good enough in the looks category, but no, Sorry, I can't believe I actually said that. Um, no, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like you couldn't do that. I don't care how much you tried it, but isn't that what we do with that verse? Okay, Jesus, I can do it. How many people are believing that about music, life, jobs? Maybe it's not, I can do everything and I define the everything. Maybe he's defining everything. Everything he's calling me into. He's not Jesus giving me a pep talk in the, uh, in the shed and then pat me and sending me out to go do his work. He's put his Holy Spirit inside of me. He goes with me. He is the one who advances the kingdom. He is the one who's doing the work and I'm participating in that. I don't have to be afraid. Courage is not an issue anymore. Confidence isn't an issue because I'm not putting or placing my hope in myself any longer. He had reoriented their everything. So, pain is to be expected. Defining your pain will never, ever, ever give you what it promises. It doesn't give you the courage to face the pain of our lives. And I'll say this. This is an important distinction, and I know I'm, 
I need to be careful on time here. That doesn't mean we don't grieve our pain. Don't run away with that thought and say, okay, well then I just don't even have to think about my life. Just receive anything that Jesus is bringing to me and just be happy about it because everything's good, God works out the good. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we don't grieve. I'm saying we don't demand an explanation. We don't demand the why. We believe that the why will actually remove our grief. That's not true. It won't. It won't do it. We need to grieve. In fact, I would suggest it like this. If I brought one of you up here and I I put your hand on this and I smashed it with a mallet, would you, before screaming your lungs out, ask me for an explanation of why I did that? And then, based on the explanation that I gave you, would you determine whether you were allowed to scream or not in pain? Because if it was a good enough reason, you wouldn't scream. I mean, do you see how stupid that is? But I do that with my pain. Something hurts, and instead of just screaming about it, instead of just being honest about the fact that I'm hurting, I actually take the responsibility of defining it, and then I give myself the permission whether to, not grieve, whether to grieve or not, whether to be sad or not, when the very fact is, is that my pain is the thing that is leading me into His presence so I can receive comfort. So if I'm unwilling to scream about the pain, it's actually severing my ability to experience His comforting presence. Jean Guion says that even though we experience pain and we're not to define it, we still feel the weight of that cross and that's okay. So that leads us to our third thing and that is this. I hate that there's only three. Not just because sermons always have threes. I think that's so weird. Pain and suffering is an undoubtable invitation to experience what your heart was made for. And what your heart was made for was His presence. That our pain can be the thing that leads us into His presence. And what do we find in His presence? Psalms talks about it 27 different times in Psalms of Lament. David and others say that what I long for is an experience of unfailing love. Something that won't fail me. Proverbs 19.22 says, What a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a liar. Better to not have all the things that you think are going to take away the groan than to be a liar. To lie about the fact that what you want is unfailing love and there's only one place to find it. Pain and suffering, this is what we do see in this story with Peter and John. It was an opportunity to be filled by the Holy Spirit. To experience a nearness of God that supplies the courage to face the broken, fallen world that we're suffering through. And maybe not just to face it, not just to shuffle our feet through it, but to do it with joy. Paul talks about this in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and that hope won't disappoint. Rejoice? Frederick Buechner, Gospel as Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. Fantastic book. R- ruining my life currently. Reorienting my cornerstone often. Uh, says it like this. He says, Beneath our clothes and our reputations, our pretensions, beneath our religion and lack of it, we are vulnerable both to the storm without and the storm within. 
And if we are ever to find true shelter, it is with the recognition of our tragic nakedness and need for true shelter that we have to start. Thus it seems to me that this also is where anyone who preaches the gospel has to start to. After the silence that is truth comes the news that is bad before it is good. The word that is tragedy before it is comedy because it strips us bare in order to ultimately clothe us. Clothe us with what? Our pain strips us, doesn't it? It creates a barren place from which I can receive a clothing. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. That the perishable, perishable is clothed with the imperishable. That the sting of death is taken away. Not just the death of when I die and I'm buried, but the sting of dying every day to myself, like Paul said. Brothers, I die every day. No, seriously, I do. The sting of it is gone. Why? How? Because he's been clothed with the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And he's experiencing the power of the resurrection here and now. Pain is to be expected. Defining it will not give you what it promises. If you are willing to receive it, it will be the thing. It can be the thing. It undoubtedly is the thing that ushers you into a completely new reality of experiencing the presence of God. And there you will find what you believe will change with your circumstances, but won't. Real peace. Real joy. Real rest. Rest that isn't circumstantial. Rest that isn't temporal. Should I read the letter? Yes. Okay. Thank you. I wrote this letter to a friend who's a distant friend who was a great friend at one point. He um, has been depressed for about three years now. He's been diagnosed with that, and his wife asked for their fourth wedding anniversary if me and a few other men would write him a letter. And um, I tried for a month. Every time I tried to write, I had nothing. It created a great deal of pain for me trying to write this letter because I was trying to change this guy's life with this letter. I, I wanted the golden egg, you know, the verse that's just going to kind of open the Shekinah roof. Oh, oh, you don't have to be depressed anymore. And the reality was, is as I sat down to write it, I realized I'm depressed. I'm sad. I'm broken. And what the heck do I have to tell this guy? Need Jesus like I do? Ugh. There, be encouraged. It was really painful. Two days late, I finally, up in this office, I was just pleading with the Lord, saying, what do you want to say to this guy? Because I don't have anything for him. And the Lord took me back into some pain. Um, and this is what came out. This is probably one of the greatest experiences of the Holy Spirit I've had on paper. It says, to be honest, I've really struggled to know what to put on this page knowing from somewhat of a safe distance that much of the past few years for you have been a struggle, one of which at times has left you quite speechless and directionless. It seems arrogant or insensitive to write you a note of encouragement when I am so relatively uninvolved in your day-to-day -day life and journey. That said, I hope this note will come to you not as anything but a letter from a fellow pilgrim who has journeyed through some long and low seasons at this point. 
and who longs to rally hope in your heart. The handful of times the Lord has given us over the past few years, I have always enjoyed, and He has impressed upon me in those times the deep weight of the somewhat undefined struggle that marks this season of your life, vocation, and marriage. I remember being on the farm. I worked on a farm for a few years. Some of you know this. After being, for all realistic purposes, fired from my first job at a church, knee-deep in hog crap, cleaning out a hog barn, and feeling so lonely and sad that I was unsure of everything in my life, I remember many times falling on my knees in complete isolation, screaming at God for answers to my questions, so broken down at that point that even posturing myself reverently before God was a complete impossibility. I was so terrified. I wondered if this was the rest of my life. For many days, my cries were met with silence. Many days. Sometime, there wasn't a particular day or even event, something slowly began to give way. I was out of tears and out of words. I was finally silent, finally quiet, done talking, thinking, processing, wrestling, arguing, demanding, expecting. God's silence gave way to my silence, and I was finally able to hear Him. Maybe for the first time. When I started to hear, it wasn't big sentences or even answers to any of the questions I had been asking. In fact, all of a sudden, he was asking the questions. They were deeper questions, ones that penetrated my questions, questions that left me silent, left me in a posture to receive not the answers, but to finally experience he who is behind all questions and answers. This was something I had never before experienced. It was something that slowly and painstakingly over time became life to me in that season. It became the cornerstone. Jesus, possibly for the first time, had broken into my life, slowly, painfully broken through, in spite of me, my arrogance, my self-sufficiency, my pride. He broke through. He led me through suffering to silence, and I finally heard His voice. And the fact that I actually heard all of the sudden was more important than what I heard. Just hearing brought a new sense of joy and peace untied to my need for answers. We started this long walk. Along the way, Jesus has addressed some of the things I was pleading about. Many of those things are still uncertain. The difference is His presence in, in the silence and the growing experiential reality that His presence was what all my pleading was truly about. And so we walk, praying that God's silence would give way to yours, that you could rest there, experiencing Jesus in that silence and the peace that comes with His presence. You're not alone. You're not alone. You and I are not alone. Let's pray. Lord, I spend so much time trying to avoid pain. I'm so surprised when it happens. I spend even more time asking for why. Father, give us the grace to not be surprised. Give us the grace to not need the why. Give us the grace to grieve our pain. To not hide behind the definition. And Jesus... 
Give us your presence in our pain. I pray that we would even desire it, Father, that we would welcome it as Paul did, that we would know that pain oftentimes is the way that we experience you and a deeper experience of you. In your name, amen.